Here's the plan. We're going to uh, read the koan, and then I have a wonderful biography of Master Yunman's, the man in the in the koan, in his uh, youth, about his youth, and about the condition in China at that time. And then I have a wonderful um, commentary on it. And then there's the commentary in the book that is a good one this time, I think. And so there's no way we're going to get through this all tonight. But I think it's a good koan for us to take some time with. Okay? Does that sound good? And so it's, there's a little uh, very interesting history of China also at that time. We haven't brought that into the koans too much before. So we'll start with the koan. Maybe. It sounds like a plan. I mean, I'm always up for. Uh, no, Kim, it's great. Kim, it's perfect. It'd be great. Be wonderful. Looking forward to it. Oh, but I'm giving you a little added information here. Because I didn't know exactly what the Buddha, the Dharma body is. So I've included that. So, okay. Who's going to read it? I can't read it. Okay. We could have a Jace. couple of people read it, in fact. Go yeah, on. Okay. Great Master Yun Men said, When the light does not penetrate freely, there are two kinds of sickness. One is when all places are not clear and there is something before you. Having penetrated the emptiness of all things, subtly it seems like there is something. This too is the light not penetrating freely. Also, the Dharma body has two kinds of sickness. One is when you manage to reach the Dharma body, but because you clinging to Dharma is not uh, well, because you clinging to Dharma is not forgotten. Your you sense of self still remains you sense of self still remains and you fall into the realm of the dharma body even if you can pass through if you let go that won't do examining carefully to think what breath is is there this too is sickness that dharma body means the essence of buddhahood the ultimate truth of law or law and the true nature of the Buddha's life. It also means a Buddha per se. Those body is the law itself. A Buddha of this kind is referred to as the Buddha of the Dharma body, or the Buddha in his body of the law. I added the second paragraph. That's not part of the koan. But I didn't want anyone to get stuck with what's the Buddha body. I mean, the Dharma body. And I, th I think the second part of it doesn't relate to the um, koan, don't you think? Hmm. That's the other, another uh, use of the, the Buddha of the Dharma body. But it's interesting. I love this idea that uh, the body is the law itself. Would someone else like to read? Nandia, are you here? Nandia is here. Oh, would you read? Yeah. Case. Great Master Yun Men said, When the light does not penetrate freely, there are two kinds of sickness. One is when all places are not clear and there is something before you. Having penetrated the emptiness of all things, subtly it seems like there is something. This too is the light not penetrating freely. Also, the Dharma body has two kinds of sickness. One is when you manage to reach the Dharma body, but because your clinging to Dharma is not forgotten, your sense of self still remains and you fall into the realm of the Dharma body. Even if you can pass through, if you let go, that won't do. Examining carefully to think, what breath is there? This too is sickness. 
The Dhamma body means the essence of Buddhahood, the ultimate truth or law, and the true nature of the Buddha's life. It also means a Buddha per se, whose body is the law itself. A Buddha of this kind is referred to as the Buddha of the Dhamma body, or the Buddha in his body of law. Would this be a good college board test? <laughs> it would be mm. a terrible bar exam, <laughs> bar exam test because there are so many undefined terms. I made the mistake of what does it feel like when the... <coughs> and I put... The Dharma doesn't feel, doesn't penetrate freely. And then I was thinking, I mean, that was like a, a slip. It's the light doesn't penetrate freely, but is the Dharma the, 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 light, the light? Anyway, someone else better talk. Who'd like to be next? I just feel very confused. Oh, good. And I feel like there's so much in here that if I could just open the box to understanding, it would mean a lot and it would clarify a whole lot of things in life. But today, well, I, I think I think you've really said a it. lot. You've said so much there. I drew a picture, Kim. Me too. You, you did see, a picture. You, you want to see it? Yeah. Uh oh. <laughs> and then, because that's the picture, I couldn't. M Melissa's having trouble seeing it. It's yeah, a, I can't. She it's thinks a, she's missing something. You're not missing anything, Melissa. There it is. <laughs> okay. There it is. And then, blank. Um, because that's the picture, I really didn't want to put. The words that relate to it, because that takes me outside what the picture is, which is the Dharma body. But the words that relate to it are on this page next to it. And it's Dharma body, no Dharma thinking, no law, no body, no eyes, no ears, no taste, no touch, no mind, no object of mind, and so on from our, um, is that the, Shin what is that from, Kim? The Heart Sutra. The Heart Sutra. So, so isn't um, it's adding even a line to to that? Right. <laughs> I mean, it's all the nose and and then right. So how forgetting, do you forgetting that? So how do you? And that's why exactly. Melissa's Melissa's confused. Which exactly. Is that's why it, it just had to be that. <laughs> but as soon as you <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It's a problem as soon as you say it, it's that. Exactly. So, but that's the closest I could get. So I must be um, in the place of, where is it? Having penetrated the emptiness of all things, trying to describe it subtly, it seems like there is something. This too is the light not penetrating freely. Because even in holding up a paper, I'm not, I'm not, yeah. I, I can't convey it. You know that saying, heads I win, tails you lose? Yeah. That, that kind of applies, doesn't it? Well, uh, yeah. So heads you lose, tails you lose. And this one, because no matter how you try to, me, to express this or what little light I think I'm gleaning from this, it's... I, I, I can't I can't put in words, but I'm so delighted you have article upon article that does. Yeah. yeah. But do you agree that it's a it seems like an important koan, even though it's so difficult? No. Yeah. Yes. You know, if we got it in one reading, in one sitting, we definitely would not have it. I, yeah, I don't think so. And I, I don't think it's something we could even carry on 
unless we work more with it. Um, Nandia or um, Malen's just listening today, but Nandia and uh, who else is hidden? Yesenia. Emily. Oh yeah, where did Emily yeah. go? Oh, and Emily, are you there, Emily? Yeah. Are you okay? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I just think that this is about, um, <laughs> uh, I just think that this is about uh, clinging to this consciousness. Hmm. And um, I think it's hard not to do that when you're in the world and your senses uh, give you one uh, experience or several experiences of the world. It's kind of hard to trust in or I don't know, anticipate or know what lies beyond. I don't know if it's a sickness so much as a condition to me. Um, there, there's a lot about sickness in um, Buddhism as, um, you know, there's a physical sickness, but then there's sickness of, of other people being sick. I think it's a very broad term, of course. And, but this idea of you think that if someone says your problem is you're clinging, then not clinging would be the solution. But it's not that. It's not mm -hmm. so, is it? That's what we're seeing. Nandia. Yeah, I think um, I, I thought that was interesting what uh, Emily said, the clinging to consciousness. I just, I think it's, also something the the subtlety of um the uh dualities we create because you know clinging to anything if we're you know clinging to dharma uh it's I think the the codependent arising of all things um, sort of uh, I, I think it's very tricky to keep that to keep that foremost and even the activity of trying to do so again reinforces, a duality so i mean that's there's a training in that so i think it's not to be uh poo-pooed <laughs> but um <laughs> this is pointing beyond that so tricky yeah i was talking to peg just just earlier this afternoon and she said i was talking to her about different conflicts and she was saying there's never two sides it's always much more complicated than that and i thought that was interesting because I, mean, I kept i keep going there oh there's two sides as people believe a, a in fact someone talked the other day about um oh flint did i was in flint's group today too it's been a long day and and um he was talking about how he was just doing a photo workshop in hawaii and the a teacher had brought a number of the students and they were all from an area in florida where everyone was was on the right wing kind side and this one guy was uh i mean they were all fantastic people he said they all loved each other the the right and the left they all got along well they all you know immediately knew they had to drop their yeah. political beliefs but but he said 
you know, this guy was so beautiful. He just talked about all the schools he was building for the community and things like that. And, and you know, but it, it's as soon as you start looking at the details, it's not clear. You know, it's clear that there's not two sides. There's many, many sides. And I've been involved with my high school friends um, in this Israel, Hamas, Palestinians um, thing. And it's so much more complicated than two sides. You know, everyone has different interests and different claims. And okay, so anyway, um, Ksenia. Well, I only know that I don't know anything. <laughs> the more well, you're close. The more, the more I know, the more I read once in my life, the more I understand that I don't know anything at all. Uh, my um, rumination, my writing was, um, well, it's it was like a stream of consciousness. I don't know how how we do it. Like, do we share it or how? Or yeah, however just, you want. Uh, well, I can read it, but I don't know if you, you can see where okay. I, my mind is, I guess. The light does not penetrate my thoughts. The sickness is inevitable. My body, the body of the uh, the body of the hungry ghost, the Buddha's body, all the law itself, the dog came, sorry, was the toy. This is a Buddha Buddha, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, the, the, I mean, the, the purpose of all cons, I guess, to bring you in the present moment and to like, to get out of the normal chain of thoughts, I guess, I don't know, it's my interpretation. So anyways, all the law itself of the threefold universe, the thought arising from the asymmetry of space creates the mind. The mind creates the body, the body creates the illness, and at the end, connecting the outer space, the space beyond my body, and the space between my thoughts, I'm entering unknown. So this is like, I was like trying to just like, whatever comes, <laughs> associations, but I, I, I just know that I don't know. That's, that's it. This is yeah, my so thought. Many, this that's it. <laughs> so many questions like <coughs> who creates the illness I don't know who but us I mean that's part of the Nandia spoke to this and Ksenia mm -hmm. just spoke to this that's that's part of the I think challenge of this practice that we only have the body through which to practice and yet it's also our impediment, isn't it? And so we can say not to, and these are coexisting realities, consciousness and, and the constructed self. But gosh, that self sure does get in the way. It's so amazingly wonderful to get through daily life. You know, I haven't had a car wreck in 30 years. So that's a good thing because I understand how the physics of living in this world works and red lights, right? But at the same time, it makes it, it's the very, it's the very vehicle to which we get to the Dharma body. And it's the very vehicle that keeps us from the Dharma body. So, but it's, what else do we have? <laughs> us. So as you read a little <coughs> biography of Yunnan, you know, think about how this, I feel like to think about how uh, the time, <coughs> excuse me, the times created this man. So I'm going to share this. Has everyone shared? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm muddle-minded. Oops. Cancel. I think everyone has shared. Ksenia and Emily and Nandia and Melissa and Nelda. And so Kim, when you just said um, the Times create this, I thought of the New York Times and I thought of how um, 
you know, how we're like little wibbly wobblies to the news feed that we, um, that we're like mainlining, you know, and how, you know, the creation of views. I mean, this is another thing that creates, um, you know, multiplicities, right? Um, it just, I just think it's interesting to reflect on that in terms of yeah, and, moving and further away from the Dhamma body. I've been thinking about that too and how we're being um, conditioned by the state of the world. So, you know, we have uh, a lot of strife in the world, right? And it's whether we deny it or not, I think it's really affecting us. So everything is kind of at odds if you look at it in certain ways. And even Kim, because I think this is important, I don't mean to keep interjecting. Our view of it as strife in the world is conditioned. I learned so much on that one trip to China. I learned so much because I I, I went to this country that had a, a people. So that's majority, pardon me. Someone with a 512 area code uh, sent uh, a long sorry, message. Sorry. I have a whole different view than we do of their government, our government, and how life should work. I, I'll never forget what I always, I asked everywhere I went knowing that it might be putting people at risk. How do you live under such a government? And in many different ways, I heard, how do you manage over a billion people but for this government? And so that, that was incomprehensible for me. And then when I went to Tibet, that was yet another paradigm when I'm like, how do you live under this subtle oppression? And the attitude was, what oppression? We just live moment to moment that, you know, we just take as it comes. There was no putting a construct on life. It's, I certainly was putting it on there and the Chinese government sure was putting it on there in terms of trying to infiltrate um, Tibet by building Chinese housing in Tibet in hopes that the people would commingle. But you see, even, even how we look at the world as filled with strife is a is our limited perspective on this side of the world based thank on you that's important hmm. okay now for the, this is a whole book about yunmen and there's uh, four different sections that i thought were relevant And by the way, I don't know, like interesting fact about the body of Yan, if you know that uh, he was he was buried and then they dig him out uh, and body wasn't um, wasn't decomposed and they keep it kept it for 1000 years in some of the shrine. And then the Chinese uh, cultural revolution happened and then they just destroyed it during this so. so this is the first <coughs> section. Is it a type? <laughs> Does it need to be bigger? A little bit would be nice. How's that? Yeah. Or this? That's good. Like that? Yeah. Okay, and so let's read <coughs> in alphabetical order. The life. So, of, go on, Emily. The life of Master Yunmen, youth. Yunmen was born in 864 in Zhejiang, a town between Shanghai and Hangzhou on China's eastern coast. His family name was Zhang, but because it was the custom for Buddhist monks to abandon their family names, he became known as Wen Yan, and later took the name of Mount Yanmen, at whose foot he built his monastery. 
To avoid unnecessary confusion, I will refer to him as Yan Men throughout the text. And then I think it's uh, Ksenia. Yanmen's birth came at a time of great political upheaval. In the years between 842 and 845, the central government of China had prescribed Buddhism and other foreign religions. No, is, what's uh, that word proscribed? Uh, 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 how do you say? Limited. Forbid? Forbid? Okay, forbid. Okay, yes. Thank you. Several, several hundred thousands monks and nuns were defrocked and secularized, 4,600 monasteries and 40,000 smaller sanctuaries were destroyed or converted to other uses. Today all my animals uh, want to participate. And the greater part of monastic property was say, seized. As the Tang period was drawing to a close, the central government has al had already lost much of its power. And in some re uh, religions, uh, region, regions of the empire, an area about the size of Europe, that power had virtually disintegrated by the time of Yun Man's birth. In these remote re regions, Buddhist uh, movements were gaining in vi vigor and influence and developing ever more idiosyncratic forms of teaching and practice. The most prominent of these movements was Chan. Uh, before we follow... No, someone the, else can read now. I see this, sorry. Okay. And so next would be Emily. No, Emily read. Next would be uh, Melissa. Sorry, I got lost a little bit. Before we follow. Uh, before we follow the course of young men's life, a cautionary remark is appropriate. The biographies of religious men in China are not unlike those of other religions, full of set stories and expressions. Pivotal events in a person's life tend to receive little attention in early sources and even more detailed descriptions in later ones. It is thus impossible to take all the available information at face value. Usually, the best one can do is rely on early sources and carefully compare all available materials. And then Nadia. Um, Milan is not reading. Right. Okay. Um. Sorry, I need to make bigger. Uh, like many of, am I in the right place? Yes. Like many other eminent monks, Yunmin is said to have had extraordinary powers of memory. The stone inscription of nine hundred sixty-four reports that from birth <coughs> showed signs of great intelligence and that as a child, he learned poems and entire Buddhist scriptures by heart after a single reading. Yunmin is also said to have been keenly aware of his spiritual leanings and to have decided to take the path of monkhood upon reaching adolescence. According to the biography contained in the record of Yunmin, young, <laughs> young Yunmin was also characterized by a strong aversion to vulgarity, a tendency to be exemplary and great eloquence. <laughs> <laughs> and now, now the... All right. Several sources assert that as a, as a boy, Yunman entered the Kongwang temple of his hometown, where he passed some years studying under a specialist in monastic um, discipline named Shi Chang. While the boy underwent this initial training, the rebellion of Huang Chao, 1874 to 1883, shook the foundations of the Chinese empire and both its eastern and southern fringes, the regions where Yunmin grew up and eventually settled down, respectively, gradually achieved autonomy. 
Various local leaders emerged and took power. In the area near um, Shanghai that contained, is it Xiangjing? Is that how you say that? For example, the former bandit leader, Qian Lu worked his way up to the position of general and eventually supreme potentate. I think we're back to Emily. Sorry, Yunmin took the monastic precepts at the usual age of 20 in the town of Yu, <coughs> near beautiful Suzhou, a town not far inland from Shanghai that is famous for its exquisite gardens, romantic canals, and tree-lined boulevards. Afterward, he returned to Zhicheng and concentrated on studying the voluminous monastic rule literature. We are told that he soon started to lecture about monastic discipline. It is not clear how many years Yanmen remained with this first teacher, and since no source gives exact dates for the period between Yanmen's 20th and 30th year, we must be content with approximate dates. Okay, the next part. Any comments here? Anything you see that you that you can connect to the koan? Koan, not, but but uh, town description of the town. I, I immediately wanted to live there. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there, and it's gorgeous. But they also eat swans, so you know you have to. They eat what? Swans. The bird. Yes. Wow. They raise swans, and that's one of their delicacies that they offer you when you visit. No. Oh. And did you try it? No. Okay. <laughs> Nor did I try their scorpion soup. Yuck. <laughs> oh, here. Uh, so the next page is, oh, 42 is teaching. It me, uh, I think. Yeah, Ksenia. And me? Okay, just mm -hmm. a second. I don't know why I don't see it. Yeah. I need to. Oh, okay. Teaching. For a few years, Yun Man taught in the Lingshu Monastery in Shaoguan, but the monastery's steady stream of visitors soon became too distracting for him and his students. The stone inscription tell us, Master Yunman got tired of receiving and entertaining people and wished to reside and at a remote and pure place. He turned <coughs> to the emperor with a request to change his place of residence. He got the imperial permission and in the 20th year of the 60-year cycle, 923, Yunmen ordered his disciples to open up Mountain Yunmen for construction. Five years later, the work was completed. So, Melissa, you? Right. Uh -huh. So, at the great age of 64, Yunmen found a quiet place where he would teach monks and lay disciples for another two decades. Most of the talks and dialogues contained in the record of Yunmen presumably came from this 20-year period. Here, the master had a stable monastic setting <coughs> and a community that included those who took down notes from his talks and thus laid the basis of the text that is partially translated in this volume. Furthermore, Yunmen enjoyed the full support of the emperor Lu Yan, who had himself brushed the characters Chan Monastery of Enlightenment of Enlightened Peace on the monastery's large door, large door plate. The inscription of 959 tells the following story about Yunmen's dealings with Lin Yan. In the 35th year, 938, His Heavenly Majesty, the Great Emperor 
Gazu Linyan summoned Master Yunmen to the Imperial Palace for an audience. The Emperor asked, What is Chan all about? Master Yunmen said, Your Majesty has the question, and your several and your servant, the monk, has the answer. The Emperor inquired, What answer? Master Yunmen replied, I request your majesty to reflect upon the words your servant has just uttered. The emperor was pleased and said, I know your personal precept, and I have respected it early. He decreed that the office of inspector of the monks of the capital be given to Master Yunman. The master remained silent and did not respond. <laughs> Coming, I guess I mean, you want me to finish? Oh, well, I, no, I think. Uh, yeah, okay, so read somebody else. Nandia, I think. Nandia? You're muted, Nandia. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh my God. All right. <laughs> Coming back to this. Oh, wait, wait, wait. That just reminded me. One of the things I wrote is God help me. Okay, go on. Do you want to say more about that? Thinking doesn't work. Letting go doesn't work. Holding on doesn't, doesn't work. And then I put God help me. Okay, go on. <laughs> Coming back to this decree, an imperial advisor said, this master has completed his training and knows the path. He is not likely to enjoy rising to a high post. The emperor then said, shall we let you return to your mountain? Master Yanman, full of joy, shouted thrice, long live the emperor, long live the emperor, long live the emperor. The following day, Master Yanman was presented with goods from the treasury, incense and medicinal herbs, and he received donations of salt and other goods. When Master Yanman returned to his mountain, the emperor conferred, along with all this, the title Genuine Truth upon him. Following this, his majesty gave donations several times every year. These donations were often not duly recorded. <laughs> Yanmen's good relations with the imperial court were maintained beyond the death of Liu Yan in 942 and the murder of his successor one year later. The next emperor, who called himself Shangzong, invited young men to the imperial palace for one month and gave them many presents, including an imperial inscription for the master's grave. But although young man was already 79, he taught at the foot of Mount Gate of the Clouds for a few more years before making use of this gift. Okay. And then... <laughs> 51, the basic problem. Oh, there's cool pictures. I didn't show you at the beginning. Mm. Wow. So this is where you were, Nelda? No, not there. Oh, okay. The beautiful the yeah. But, and it's really interesting to see the monastery. Oh, here it is. Wow. Wow. You know, because in the other uh, koan, the cat one that we all loved, um, there was the two sides of the monastery. But so this is quite a thing. And, it, and the, <coughs> the monks all built this, supposedly. Or a semblance of that.
This is his moment before they lost it. I'm sorry. His his mommy, his mommy, his body that were preserved and were like for centuries they were keeping it intact. And during the revolution, during the cultural revolution, they destroyed it basically. I see. This is what the book, The Record of Young Men, looks like. You're precise. You know, do, do, does anyone find it interesting that when the emperor asked him, he said, you don't often hear this, I know the answer. I found that very interesting that he said, you you asked the question and I know the answer, not that he shared the answer. But uh, and in some ways, the Buddha said that by saying, having attained, you know, this um, beyond death, the, the, the state mm -hmm. of beyond death, he was essentially saying, I know the answer. And obviously through his Dharma teachings indirectly saying that. But I just found that interesting. It's no. funny, as you're saying that, it's exactly mm -hmm. these words, isn't it? Yeah. Transmitted mm -hmm. outside of established doctrine, Chan does not institute words. Rather, it points directly to the human being's heart. Seeing your nature makes you a Buddha. Mm -hmm. I just want to see if there's any more pictures. Oh, here. Oh, yeah, this is the one I used in the thing about mm -hmm. tonight. Yeah. And Ha Quinn is, is quite a poet. Okay, we want to get to 51. I, I don't want to miss any of the illustrations. It's like there's one more. I really like that one. And again, even in the photos you're showing us, the last one had a subtitle of... Um, oh, this is new. And this is a mummy replica. Okay, that. thank you for that. Because the <laughs> last one said, as imagined by so-and-so. The other one, Aquin, yes. Okay, the basic problem. The basic problem. Tradition has it that the Buddha, faced with questions of a metaphysical nature, once used a parable to explain his view. Such questions, he said, were like those of a person wounded by an arrow who would like to know what the arrow consisted of, where it came from, etc., rather than seek to have it removed and the wound healed. His teaching, he said, was designed to heal, not to answer such questions. This illness, one might add, is a universal one, afflicting all persons alike. And there's a beautiful story, well, beautiful to me, where the Buddha picks up some leaves. The ground is all covered with leaves, and he says, this is the stuff I can talk to you about, or that I'll talk to you about. You know, implying that he could talk about all the leaves, but this is the stuff that will release suffering that's my take on it anyway when he says i can talk about these leaves okay go on so who's next after emily uh me i guess no yes buddhism is thus an art of healing rather than a philosophy an aid to help one towards salvation rather than a philosophical edifice the zen teacher tries to get his students to take care of their problems and he steers them towards that goal by whatever means he sees fit. Just like that father in the Lotus Sutra who had to re resort to various tricks in order to save his children, who were obviously playing in the burning house. This is the kind of teaching that we encounter in the present translation. So that's the whole idea of skillful means, that you have these kids playing in the house, the house is burning, the kids are going to die, 
and you give them some, you make up some promise to get them out of the house. Like there's going to be this golden chariot with all their toys will be outside. So they come out of the house and then actually it's funny. They, they get a lot of what was promised, but, but (coughs) so there's not like one right moral thing you Mm. should do because kids are important. Okay. But in the course of Buddhism's history and its journey through various countries and cultures, many rituals, much imagery, and a good deal of magic, and also many philosophical movements developed and flourished within it. A large part of the baggage that accumulated on the journey through India, Central Asia, and China was gradually thrown away in Chan. At Chan's inception, we are already we already detect the will to get back to the essentials and concentrate on the one thing that ultimately matters in Buddhism, the removal of the arrow, the realization that turned Gautama into the Buddha awakening. Sarah Satori. And that's really a big deal rather than because we go off so many times of blaming where the problem is that there's an arrow stuck in us. Okay, and then uh, Nandia is next. Chan texts are impressive documents of this endeavor and orientation. Practitioners ask their teacher about what occupies them in their striving toward awakening and is central to their life and practice. And the teacher, by his presence and teaching, points toward the very same thing. The content and methods of teaching are as strictly adapted to the particular circumstances and audience as a medicine to the illness it must remove. Yet regardless of time, place, and circumstance, the goal remains the same, healing and recovery. But healing and recovery from what? So mm-hmm. this, this is a clue to me about the sickness <coughs> and the arrow, the arrow in, 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 the, um, in the koan. That if it's just like a mental challenge, it's not worth much, <coughs> but if it's a, a opportunity to get rid of the sickness, which I think the koan is, <coughs> and it's more important. Okay, another one, paragraph. Ancient Buddhist scriptures contain various analysis of the core problem that drove the Buddha on his quest and is the raison d'etre of his teaching. Best known is the explanation that the Buddha is said to have given in in the first speech after his awakening. In this speech, he presented the Four Noble Truths, the first two of which consist of the Buddha's diagnosis of the basic problem lying at the core of human existence. This one is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering, old age is suffering, disease is suffering, Death is suffering. Union with what one dislikes is suffering and separation from what one likes is suffering. Not obtaining one's wish is suffering. In brief, the five kinds of objects of attachment are suffering. And this amongst is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. It is the thirst that leads from rebirth to rebirth accompanied by pleasure and covetedness which finds its pleasure here and there, the thirst for pleasure, the thirst for existence, the thirst for impermanence. And that's the beginning of the next paragraph, so I'll stop. I'm surprised by that last, the thirst for impermanence, because yes, me too. I would expect it to be the thirst for permanence. Mm-hmm. But maybe- Wait, 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 the thirst for? Oh, I see what you mean. No, you wouldn't say the thirst. Oh, let's see what, what, this is page 53. Let's see what the, the, this is. Well, that didn't help. 
So could it be that because he was talking to monks and because that would be a monk's thirst um, to go beyond um, repeated lives, right? Or it's a typo or it's something else. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, impermanence that's something to think about yeah I don't is it the thirst to truly understand and hold the reality of impermanence like fully embodied I don't know Tim where did that come from from his first teaching surely not tonight but surely oh Um, let me quickly look it up okay. because, um, This is from Buddha's first sermon on the four, <coughs> fourfold path. Um, well, let's just go to it, okay? You mean the four noble truths? Or the, the four noble truths. What, what did I say? The four you noble paths? You said yeah, the yeah. fourfold path. Okay. Um, thank you. for. Because it seems like this is pointing to... It um, is. I have it right here. I just have to share it. But go on. Stop share. It seems that this is pointing toward. No, go ahead. Oh. I don't know. I think it's just a, a weird uh, way of putting it. Like they didn't mean. Um, that exactly. I'll try to find it, but yeah. <laughs> not now. Okay, so I'm, we got to go back to this. No, I think you're right. I think it's maybe a com comment on um, the middle way, uh, avoid the extremes and. We certainly this, attach ourselves to this desire for permanence. Go on. The thirst for anything, I guess it can be. Yes. <laughs> it's the three characteristics of a Nietzsche, Dukkha, and Anatta that I think that's talking about. Here we go. Is it Emily's turn or mine? I don't know. It's yours, Kazenia. It's yours. Okay. Yeah, do it. <laughs> this explanation, very concise by Indian standards, is by Chan teachers once more distilled and expressed in many concrete and original ways. Take just one formulation that stems from Masters Yun Men. A monk asked, what is the problem? Master Yun Man replied, you don't notice the stench of your own shit. Well, now we know that coronavirus existed in times of Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> the I don't know. Shall I read? The yes, go on. Okay. The directness of the question and the unerring aim and uncouth 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 terseness of the reply are characteristic of Chan as a whole. The Japanese Zen master Bankei, 1622-1693, uh, said the same in a more civilized manner. Your self-partiality is at the root of your 
of all your illusions. There aren't any illusions when you don't have this preference for yourself. Hmm. We read that he didn't like profanity too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the, yes, exactly. So it's like maybe yeah, too too literal. Yeah. <clears throat> so I I learned I learned from what we read in Soji today that there needs to be a stopping point. Where might that be? This would be a good place. Hmm. Where, we, where are we? We on, right here. On, on the refined word for mad. Okay, you want to uh, <coughs> next time continue and finish this section? Uh huh. Okay, I will write it down. So, because. So if I'm still around. Oh, please be. I'm attached to your being around. Huh? I am too. <laughs> okay, so this is uh, 7 o'clock, and it's page 53. And it's the word shit right there. <laughs> <laughs> How can you not remember that? This is on my, Something this is to funny. ruminate today about. It's on my calendar for for the 20th page 53 oh. shit oh, okay and i and i won't be here oh but, but i'm okay. I'm, I'm probably but i'd like to do one more thing yes <laughs> Let, let's read the koan okay don't you think yes See if it's quite as obtuse. Have Emily and Milan departed? Okay, Emily, I know Milan needed to go at eight. Yeah. Emily. She left also. Oh, I'll read. Okay. Case. Great Master Yemen said when the light does not penetrate freely, there are two kinds of sickness. One is when all places are not clear and there is something before you. Having penetrated the emptiness of all things, subtly it seems like there is something. This too is the light not penetrating freely. Also, the Dharma body has two kinds of sickness. One is when you manage to reach the Dharma body but because you're clinging to Dharma, it is not forgotten. Your sense of self still remains, and you fall into the realm of Dharma of the Dharma body. Even if you can pass through, if you let go, it won't do. Examining carefully to think what breath is there. This too is sickness. So this is a teacher who really loves you and wants to help you and keep you from suffering to me. Mm. It's not like someone who wants to confuse you. <laughs> I think if he could say it in a, in a easier way, he would have, I would hope that you guys agree. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I would think yeah. less of him if he was just being obtuse because, um, because that's he cool. Wanted to... right. I mean, I've heard people like that. You know, sometimes, and this happens with professors, I'm sure you know that, Kim, sometimes a professor is so advanced in whatever his or her area is that the answer is very clear and they can give it very shortly and very succinctly. But you, as a newbie, as someone new to it, it 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 doesn't it doesn't penetrate, and it just takes time after practice, and you go, oh, I understand now what 
that professor meant by that. So yeah, Burton just, Russell said you should explain things like you're talking to a ten year old, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.